0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm Steve Rubin, and this podcast celebrates classic, current, and cult movies. And here, it's always Saturday night. And tonight's show is dedicated to that classic and venerable MGM film from 1956, Forbidden Planet. And the best co-host I could think of in the on the planet, our planet, is my good friend, William Malone, I call him Bill, and Bill is, has been my friend only for 47 years. So we were, we were very young when we met. Uh, if you don't know the career of Bill Malone, he is one of the most creative and kind of artistic horror film directors ever. Uh, many of you saw his remake of House on Haunted Hill He did for Warner Brothers, which was a terrific international success. But Bill has also won a lot of plaudits for his original work on two amazing episodes of Tales from the Crypt. He did an amazing episode of uh, Masters of Horror for Showtime. He's done independent films. He's done cult films. He's done studio films. Uh, I think, like, like myself, if you open Bill's veins, you'd probably see Celluloid. And yes, I, I, I reek of the smell of uh, of silver halides. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I met Bill, I, I was working for Cinefantastique. I was their West Coast correspondent in the early 70s. And I had some success with some of my retrospective work. And the editor, Fred Clark, and I decided we would do a retrospective on Forbidden Planet, which had never been done. And, And basically, I called around, and I don't remember who gave me the nod, but it may have been Fred. I mean, he said, you got to talk to Bill Malone because he owns Robbie the Robot. And I said, excuse me? Oh, yes, he has him. So when I showed up at Bill's house in Studio City that night to interview him, or it may have been during the day, uh, I walked into the house, and I went into the den. And standing there was the original Robbie the Robot. And in all my time as a film historian, you know, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people. I've covered so many different films. That is one of my favorite moments ever, because I felt like I was in the presence of royalty. I mean, my God, that's Robbie. And for those of us who started watching science fiction movies back in the '50s, Robbie the Robot was just a classic character. and Bill owned him. And I couldn't believe it. And um, that was the beginning of our friendship, as they say, in, in at the end of Casablanca, uh, Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains, you know, th- I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And I think that's where our, our friendship really began. And I treasure that relationship. And so good to have you on the show, Bill.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me. Uh, I, I really uh, am going to enjoy this. I One of my favorite Topics and of course, is Forbidden Planet, and and uh, I've been a fan of the film since I saw it, and I was
0: uh, I don't know nine
1: years old or something.
0: And what do you remember about first seeing Forbidden Planet?
1: Well, I mean, I, I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and and I remember it was at a theater called the Gladner Theater, and uh, I remember, um, it, it, that was an, at a time when your uh, parents would give you I don't know fifty cents and go down to the movie theater by yourself at nine years old. And uh, uh, I remember, you know, paying the money and and sitting there. And when the saucer came overhead with all of Louie and B.B. Barron's music, I remember I was just hooked right from then. And then when I saw Robbie the robot step out of his Jeep, I went, this is the greatest thing ever, so.
0: I think I think one of the first things that is amazing about Forbidden Planet, it's in color, and there are very few science fiction movies in the 50s that, I mean, Stan, I mean, obviously, War of the Worlds, This Island, Earth, but, I mean, the color, I mean, this was an MGM Class A production, wasn't it?
1: Well, MGM, you know, that was their thing, is that if they were going to do something, they were going to, you know, put full force behind it, so they didn't... Uh... You know they didn't spare any of the talent that they had. You know on on hand, and of course that was quite massive at that time. They were still. Uh, it was sort of the end of the studio system, but they still had all of their sort of machinery in 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 the works, and uh, including you know great effects guys and and great prop builders. Uh, um, uh, uh, one of the guys, Arnold Gillespie, you may you've seen his name a million times. Uh, I visited him as at his house and, you know, and he, you know, he told me that, uh, that they they were constantly buying uh, machinists away from Lockheed, <laughs> you know, and they <laughs> gave more money and the guys are happy to go make movie props instead of aircraft parts. So uh,
0: <laughs> the, um, you know, the the MGM law to me is, uh, you know, kind of a, a story in itself uh, when I was a kid about the same time I was going to see movies on uh, called, like Forbidden Planet I would take drives to my cousin's house in the Blair Hills right next to the Baldwin Hills and we would drive by uh, lot three which was the backpack lot not the Thalberg lot but the you know the back main lot and there were all these burned out buildings there I always wondered why why are these things standing because they were they were they were uh house fronts that were all charred. And then I think I realized later this was left over from the 1939 Gone with the wind where they burned down Atlanta, uh, which is an amazing and uh, you you had the fortune of being able to kind of um kind of carouse around that lot and finding old props and dumpsters, weren't you?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, um, I was fortunate enough to uh uh, meet um, a guy named Jimmy McLennan, who was the head of the construction at the time. And this was a, at a time when uh, this is in the mid 70s. And uh, the, the lot had it was being uh, sold and it was transferring hands. And um, a lot of the old timers who were there realized that a lot of the stuff was just going to be either thrown in the dumpster or in some way gotten rid of. So uh, Jimmy was very keen uh on, on my notion to to save as much stuff as possible so uh, i was very fortunate to hit just at the right moment might meet the right guy
0: um and, and i mean how, you don't meet a guy like that having coffee at starbucks of course there weren't any starbucks in those days where did you first meet him
1: well actually i i met him uh through uh the guy at uh, movie world jimmy brucker who had who at that time uh, still had the original robbie and uh and he he uh, gave me an introduction to to Jimmy, and um, when I, I went over to see him at a, at his uh, office, it, it, uh, j- just to digress for a moment. His office was in this glass building, which was it was all uh, glass windows. And later on, I realized that it was the original, the first uh, stage, not even sound stage. It was the first stage at MGM. It was like where they shot the silent movies and that that was then turned into the construction department later on. But that was what that's where his office was. And anyway, um, so I went over and uh, met with him and uh, I, you know, I told him that I really wanted to preserve as much of this stuff as possible. And uh, he, God bless him. He, he gave me um uh, my, I, w- I was with Bob Short, the effects guy. Uh, you might know who's
0: a, a genius effects man. Yeah, Oscar winning Bob Short. Yeah.
1: Yes, um, and, and uh, Bob and I uh, were given um, permission and this pass to go through the studio and find whatever we wanted to find. And uh, he would then sell it to us for pennies on the dollar. Um, my first outing with Jimmy McLennan is I told him I was looking for stuff from Forbidden Planet. And uh, he took me in the back, and uh, there was a, um, this is on a lot one, there was a, um, uh, an old building, it was like two stories tall, but it looked like a rickety old wooden building, no paint on it, it was, you know, and I think it was part of the motor pool, but on the second floor, this is a wood ramp that went up to the second floor, and We went up there and he unlocked the padlock and opened the door and I'm sure my mouth must have dropped down to the floor (laughs) because there was most of the Krell lab sitting there covered in eons of dust and uh, there was a bunch of stuff, not only Forbidden Planet stuff, but there were, um, uh, I think the newest stuff I saw was from a movie called Ice Station, Zebra, some jets and submarines and things like that. Uh, but there were also like, like I said, the Forbidden Planet stuff. There was the Krell combination lock and all the fence posts and just a, a lot of stuff from the film. But so also that, that,
0: that wasn't that wasn't being stored. The, I mean, that was being stored there. That wasn't where they actually shot it, right? No, no, it's just storage. Right. It
1: was just a, a storage room that was, and it looked kind of like it had been kind of forgotten. But of course, Jimmy knew where it was. And uh, also, as we walked in the door, I passed these giant green machines, and I realized they were the uh, wizard's machines from Wizard of Oz. Oh, my God. (laughs) And they were all sitting there. And I probably could have had them, but, you know, they were so big, I went, what would I do with these things, you know? But you did acquire part of the Krell lab. I acquired most of the stuff that was still remaining on it. one when, when I got there, the first thing I asked him about was the uh, the giant uh, globe um, that had the spaceship on it for, in it from the, uh, the the navigation center from the C fifty seven D, and uh, he, I asked him about it. and He said, "Well, you're a day late, the dollar short. That was ground up yesterday."
0: Oh, so, oh, yeah, they
1: they were literally taking stuff out of there and putting it in the middle of the the uh, yard, and they had a bulldozer, and they were bulldozing stuff. (laughs) So that's somewhere in landfill, unfortunately. uh, They were were making room, part of it, they were making room for the UA building, and uh, so they needed all that space, and they were getting rid of all the prop storage.
0: For those of you who are listening who haven't seen Forbidden Planet, Mm -hmm. of course, it's one of the classic science fictions, but we've been talking about the Krell Lab, and the Krell Lab is... Part of the character Morbius's uh, world that he lives on this planet. And uh, he's he's done a lot of research into this alien race. We're on a planet called Altair IV. Uh, and uh, at one point, he takes the space, uh, the spacemen from cruiser C 57D, kind of a Star Trek uh, type of cruiser. Um, uh, one of the most interesting cruises of all time, because it was actually a saucer, which was I think totally cool because most of the time when we see flying saucers in science fiction movies, they belong to the bad guys. Uh, this is obviously a good guy saucer, and well, it, pre-
1: it, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it's really the first time in a in a movie that uh, that humans show up in a flying saucer.
0: And So cool. So very, very cool. So you so you started to get some stuff now you found amazing things you found uh, costumes you found blasters Is this all from Jimmy.
1: No, I mean some of the stuff I collected from other places, you know, uh, various people would bring me stuff I mean I bought, I bought uh, most of the wardrobe from uh, Forbidden Planet from uh, uh, a guy who was a who had been at the um, he was a, an effects guy, I forget his name, but he had been at the uh, MGM auction, and uh, they were selling stuff. Uh, after the main auction, they actually had a retail sale, which was, I think, two about two weeks later after the auction. And they just basically uh, dragged out all the costumes and, and stuff, and they were just selling them like a store. You could just go down there and buy whatever you wanted, and it all had price tags on it. And he bought, like, the entire rack of Forbidden Planet stuff, so... Uh, he later sold it to me, which included, you know, the spacesuits and uh, Morbius's costume and some of that stuff. There wasn't any of Altera's stuff in it because uh, uh, the guys who were in the Wizard of Oz, you know, uh, wanted all that stuff, so they they sort of spirited the uh, the women's wardrobe away.
0: Right, right. W- um, why would why would you mention Wizard of Oz? Was there a tie end Forbidden Planet or?
1: Uh, no, no, I just meant that that uh, um, the guys, th- there was a guy who was like, really into the Wizard of Oz, who was sort of like, um, it's kind of like having the, the wolf <laughs> guard the chicken. House. <laughs> he, he was, uh, uh, they hired him to, uh, I guess, curate some of the props and stuff at the MGM auction, uh, you know, and, and to uh, arrange them for sale. And I think he was spiriting a lot of that stuff away for himself, you know, so. Uh,
0: got it, uh, got it. And he was, he was a big Wizard
1: of Oz collector. And, but I thought, so I think he was very much into women's wardrobe. So uh, he uh, nabbed, I think, Al, you know, uh, Anne Francis's costumes.
0: Now, had you already purchased Robbie or is that later?
1: Uh, I had not had Robbie at that point. I, I, I bought Robbie later on. Uh, and uh, from because originally what happened was after the auction, Robbie. Uh, um, the, I had actually called them, and asked because Robbie was not at the auction, he was not up for sale at the auction. And I actually called down there and talked to uh, the construction department. I may have talked to Jimmy, I don't know, but I, I asked him about Robbie, and they said they were planning on hanging on to him. And I think it was maybe about six months later, they decided that they were going to get rid of him. So they Jimmy Brucker, who he ran one of these places like it was like a wax museum, it was down in Buena Park, called movie um, Cars of the Stars and Planes of Fame. And um, he had he bought a lot of stuff from MGM and all all the other studios as well. And um, so he bought so much stuff that they just gave him Robbie and uh, Robbie was uh, uh, on display there for quite some time and later when uh, they went out of business. I got a call from a friend of mine and said that they were selling Robbie and I better get my butt down there. So <laughs> I mean <I'm> the <laughs> phone I was in the car before the phone hit the floor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, um that was quite a moment for you. I mean, I, I I frankly think that uh uh you don't get those kind of calls very often. Uh that one of the great props in history uh is available. Um how long did you have to negotiate with the movie museum guy to get them?
1: Well, it wasn't, it, I was just w- went, went down there the same day. And when I got there, I mean, it, it was true. They were just selling everything. And I, I asked them how much they wanted for it. And they told me, and it was a lot of money at that time. Now it's like pennies, but at the time it was a lot of money. And and I said, okay, uh, yeah, done. And I, 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 I couldn't let Robbie just go away. There was a lot of stuff that had been happening to props at that point, like um, the time machine uh, had been sold at the auction and it wound up in some side show and then the, the somebody stole a chair out of it and, you know, sold it off as a barber's chair and a you know, bunch of stuff like that. And I was afraid something uh, untoward would happen to Robbie. So, uh, so naturally I decided that I had to have him.
0: Why do you think Robbie has been such a such a memorable icon in movie history. What is it about Robbie that gets people all charged?
1: Well, I think there's a number of things. I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, he's just a great design. He's just a fabulous design. And uh, he's got so much animation. Um, and uh, um, I, I, in fact, I often say to uh, film students, you know, I've taught film... <laughs> And I I tell him I said every movie needs Robbie the robot. And what, what I mean what I mean by that is not that they need to actually have Robbie, although that wouldn't be bad. Uh, but Robbie he was a scene stealer. Every time he's in the scene, you just you couldn't help but watch him. He just he got so much animation and it was it was so beautifully accomplished. It was such a beautiful prop. And it's the first time a movie robot actually ever looked like it might have actually been real, and of course m g m also promoted that idea. They never let pictures out of anybody getting into the costume or any of that stuff and and uh they all the publicity was uh, geared towards it being a real robot, and that's how they sold it. of course I believed it when I was a kid and uh and yeah, he just had a and he was kind of a charming character, you know I had the voice of Marvin Miller as a as your your butler, <laughs> he was just a, a, a great character.
0: And Marvin Miller, of course, was that great character actor from that TV series, The Millionaire. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, I um, there's something about 1950s science fiction films um, that I, I always refer to. It. There's a certain charm about them. They don't bludgeon you to death with effects. They don't. You know, they don't overwhelm you with action, it's just there's something very subtle and wonderful. I I applied it to films like The Time Machine and War of the Worlds. Um, Well,
1: look, look, except for a very few uh, 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 films, uh, uh, modern films, uh, the 1950s films had more imagination. I mean, like aliens were aliens, you know, it's like nowadays it's, you know, it's just Regular people with strange headgear. You know, it's uh, it. it I liken the uh, current idea of what aliens are is like something like uh, those old, uh, you know, uh, uh, movies with the rocket men. You know, King of the Rocket Men. You know, with, you know, with uh, jumpsuits on and you know, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, lightning bolts across their chest. But uh, that's like, like the modern version of that now. You know. But there's a few movies that have uh you know imagination but really i think it's it's the 1950s had more of that going on when you look back at like it came from outer space alien was alien he wasn't you know anybody that was going to be uh you know uh having a discussion on uh,
0: (laughs) well i i particularly like movies like that because i found um, something very eerie that they took place in the desert because the desert was something I had some familiarity with the desert because our family trip every year was to drive to Las Vegas. You know, some families go to Europe or Mexico or Catalina. My dad liked to play pan in the Fremont Hotel on Fremont Street. So every Memorial Day, we would drive to Vegas. And I would stare out at that desert as I was driving by. And this is about the time I'm seeing movies like Forbidden Planet and Came from Outer Space and Them And terror from the year 5000 a lot of those cheapy corman movies and and american international and the desert was always kind of something that there's something creepy out there and i I just love that and to this day i refuse to drive uh, to fly to las vegas i got to take the drive and see that same desert yeah of course probably a lot of dead bodies buried up (laughs) So you get Robbie, when you got Robbie, he came with, I think you told me he came in his original box, right?
1: Yeah, well, what came with it was the uh, the original stage cases. They're they're really not shipping cases, but they're the kind of cases you'd move them around on the stage with. And, of course, they were shipping cases in the sense that when he was taken around on tour, you know, when the, when the film was released, they had Robbie tour with the movie. And uh, these cases... They would roll them onto railway express. Now, now, people this this day and age don't know what that is. Railway express was like how you ship stuff, and you'd take it down to this office, and and they actually had this like tr- um, track that would just roll it right onto a box car. So, uh, you know, shipping was actually fairly gentle on stuff back then when you just roll it onto a a box car and ship it. You know. But, uh, yeah, I got his stage cases, which, uh, fortunate for me, um, I guess because of the tours, they had put a lot of extra parts in, in this one drawer, and they pretty much foresaw everything that was going to break, and there was, like, just a plethora of, of parts and stuff in there, and it was it was great, so I was able to any damage that would
0: had been done to Robbie I was able to replace with the origi- back pre original parts <laughs> how did he actually look when you when you got him was he in fairly good condition oh, well, he was um he was kind of beat looking i mean he was
1: kind of beat up looking but um <laughs> there, there was some parts that were broken and so forth but like i say they were um like uh, uh you know i think as i recall i think maybe the top spinners were missing those sort of round ones. And, uh, but there were two brand new ones, like I said, in the the box, so that wasn't really a problem. Um, But yeah, I mean, he, and he needed to be repainted, which I repainted him back in the day. But of course, he had been repainted, I think, by the studio themselves. They probably repainted him two or three times over the years, because he was a working robot. It wasn't like that after Forbidden Planet, they was just stuck him in the box. He, he uh, of course did the tour for the film, and then of course he did um, Invisible Boy, and uh, and then after that, The Thin Man, and uh, episodes of uh, of uh, Twilight Zone and uh, Lost
0: in Space. Sure, sure, of course, yeah. of course. He, by f- the
1: way, in case you're listening, this is not the Lost in Space robot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this is yeah, the was... Forbidden Planet robot. Um, right. um, and then, what about? his car did you get that also from movie museum yeah Well, what happened was
1: they had it there and when i bought robbie i didn't actually want the car because i didn't know what i would do with it uh but they but uh, jimmy brucker said you want the robot you take the car <laughs> <laughs> so uh it showed up and of course i'm really glad that i did now you know i mean it was it was really a cool thing to have and so forth and uh,
0: now He's when you good. sold Robbie recently, and I know you've had him all these years and you finally sold him at auction, did you also sell the car?
1: Yeah, I decided that he really should go all together. Everything that was Robbie should go all to in, in one in one uh package. Uh for a couple of reasons. One is is you know there's there's been replicas of Robbie that've been produced and I didn't want somebody looking oh it's not the original or something of course that never came up anyway when you saw Robbie you knew that was the original and and of course uh, but you know also supplying with the car and the boxes and all of the stuff and it even had I actually I had the head from Twilight Zone and uh, the Uncle Simon head and uh, and a control panel which nobody had ever seen before. Which was the his operating panel when he uh when the operator had too much to do to operate the controls inside uh they had a guy off camera without this uh control panel so
0: the um i was I looked lost my train of thought I was going to say um oh yeah i I was going to talk about uh Robbie post uh, posts. I, I obviously when I did my encyclopedia of the twilight zones I made good notes of uh, of his appearance there uh, in those twilight zone episodes um, I mean Robbie Robbie was probably getting more character actor work than some character actors
1: yeah my first wife was upset that, that she was an actress she was upset that Robbie got more work than she did <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, the the this list listeners aren't aware of the fact that not only are you a film director and a great writer and a, and a, a great collector, but you are an engineer in your own way and a an artist and you actually built a second Robbie, as I recall uh, because you had the original plans and I think you sold off that second Robbie, correct?
1: Well yeah, well, actually, what happened was uh, when when I f- when I first uh, saw Robbie in person, he was on display in Movie World. And I was, and and of course at that time he, they had no plans of selling him, And I, I desperately wanted to have uh, a Robbie. So I uh, built the first, I guess the first replica that anybody built of Robbie. And uh, um, uh, the way I did it is I used all photographs to do it from, and, uh, and it was funny because later on when I met Jimmy McLennan he handed me a set of the original blueprints and I went oh, a day late that was short
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, but those I, are those are ha- helping you now because i hear you're building another one
1: uh, yes i'm i'm uh, actually in a way because what happened was i wound up with Robbie i wound up with the um uh um extra legs that were actually built by and B the effects house I had some extra legs built for when we did Robbie uh, with Looney Tunes back in action. I didn't want to use the original legs because they were getting old, and I was afraid of doing some damage to them. So I had them build a new set of legs. And then after I sold Robbie, of course, I kept the the uh, I kept everything that wasn't part of the original Robbie. So you know, uh, so I wound up with
0: the legs, and I thought, well, I might as well finish them off. So I've been working on that. And soon we're going to see another Robbie. I mean, it's just, he's kind of like, uh, I've always thought of him as your your uncle, correct?
1: <laughs> I guess, yes. My uh...
0: <laughs> Well, let's get back to Forbidden Planet itself. I mean, I, you know, I, I also remember seeing it at my local theater. For me, it was the Fox Stadium Theater on Pico in West LA. I lived across the street from the theater, so it wasn't a long journey for me every Saturday morning. And I remember how wondrous it was to learn about this, I mean, to watch this story unfold with the full color photography. And and I think an area of the movie that we can discuss a little bit uh, in which we, you and I were and were able to discern a lot from talking to the actual composers is the music, the wonderful um, electronic tonalities by Lewis and B.B. B. Barron. What was your impress- impression of that music when you first heard it?
1: Well, you know, I was very young, so, uh, you know, it just seemed like this was the right stuff for this movie. But, I mean, in, in retrospect, I mean, uh, what people don't understand is, is Louis and B.B. Baron created electronic music. They're the people who created it. And uh, I was just watching a thing the other night on, uh, you know, they were talking to uh, Buchla and... Uh, and some interviews with Moog and stuff. Yeah, those guys, they did some great work. But I'm sorry, guys, you guys did not create electronic music. Louis and B.B. Barron created it. And uh, I think it's uh, time that they get their just due.
0: <laughs> yeah, for those of you who've not seen Forbidden Planet, one of the first things you're going to hear when you watch this movie, and of course, there are wonderful, I'm, I'm sure there are wonderful Blu rays available of Forbidden Planet. And if you don't have it, go out and purchase it because, uh, you're talking about one of the top 10 greatest science fiction movies ever, but the music just it's just so otherworldly and as Bill points out, the Barons were were doing electronic music before there was really electronic music I mean there is, I guess you could technically say that the use of a theremin in a movie so yeah. score is is electronic but. Uh, it was just an added feature in a, in a score like Bernard Herrmann's score for The Day the Earth Stood Still. But with Forbidden Planet, they were asked to supply the music wall to wall. And well, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, not only that, but um, uh, the, it's interesting because the music, which it is music uh, because it carries a mood and tone, uh, it's music and effects at the same time, which is a really interesting thing. I mean, and uh, really groundbreaking, uh, and, and you, I've, I've got to give a lot of credit to Dory Sherry. Now, uh, most people don't know who Dory Sherry was. Dory Sherry was a writer who, after Louis B. Mayer was, was uh, kicked out of MGM, Dory Sherry took over, and Dory Sherry, um, his, his wife was in New York and went to a play and they were playing some of Louie and Bebe's music and she told uh, her husband Dory about it and uh, and he was smart enough to, to know that that belonged in Forbidden Planet. So that's how it happened. They originally had a score, that was going to be an orchestral score, uh, I mean that hadn't been finalized but they had, you know, there's temp, there's a temp uh, some temp tracks that were put in the work print and, you know, it just it would not have been the same movie. I mean, I think uh, 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 Beebe. I became very good friends with Beebe, and she told me that uh, that uh, she bumped into uh, Walter Pigeon and they talked about Forbidden Planet. And, and Walter said to her that, that that they saved Forbidden Planet, and I think that that's true. If you think of that movie without their score, it would have been a completely different film.
0: I, I always remember that uh, Robbie kind of had his own little electronic theme uh, whenever he was on camera, and when he's tidying up the the breakfast area, when he zaps that monkey, and then when he goes out to see uh, the cook cookie.
1: Oh yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a very thematic score. I mean, every every piece has its theme. You know, the saucers has got its own theme, and Robbie has his own theme, and the Id monster, which is a great scary sound that they created and. And I, one of my favorite things is when he's, a, when the id monster's attacking the Crow Lab and trying to get through the door, there's this, uh, I can only be described as this horrible screaming, screeching sound, which is just, it's chilling. And it's, uh, uh, you know, kudos to the Barons.
0: Oh, yeah. And and I remember researching with them and spending time with them. And they loaned us the, uh, the print they worked for, for their score from, which uh, astoundingly, it was an early work print, which had uh, scenes that were later cut from the film. And one of, uh, one of the more interesting ones is after after um, Commander Adams, the Leslie Nielsen character kind of zaps her pet tiger into nothingness. Uh, There's a discussion about why the tiger tried to attack her when it was her pet and I think Doc, I think it isn't it doc and uh, Adams are talking about the um, the theory of the unicorn. Yeah,
1: yeah that's a nighttime scene and it's, uh, of course was cut from the film but uh, yeah there was there was that scene and there was a few other things little bits and pieces that were cut out of the film. Which are in that work print. I have to tell you about the work print, which I think you were at that screening, as I recall, was that uh, was at the uh, Simon Simonton house in uh, in Toluca Lake and uh, they had a little screening room downstairs. And I remember uh, I had brought a 35 millimeter print. We were gonna run Forbidden Planet and, and Louie and B and Louis, or not Louie, but BB Baron was gonna come and, and a few other people and we were gonna screen Forbidden Planet. And B.B. showed up and said, uh, uh, you know, I brought my own print along, uh, which would you rather see? And the other print was 16 millimeter. I thought, well, you know, 16 is not going to look that good. But I thought, uh, let's run let's run their print, you know. And I remember that when the the film started going and suddenly it said there was like uh, title cards that said like uh, fade in and then I saw lines that were like music cue lines, and then suddenly a voice in, in the final decade of the 21st century men and women in chemically fueled rocket
0: ship. <laughs> and then I, I went, What? You know? And, uh, you know, it was. And don't forget the discovery of quantum gravitetic hyperdrive. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, just, you just go, my jaw dropped. I went, Oh my God, we're seeing something that nobody's ever seen. And uh, and then there then there started to be scenes that we'd never seen before, and it was just uh, oh man, that was that was quite an, quite a night.
0: And you could see why they cut certain scenes. One of the craziest is uh, when Robbie arrives at the spaceship and uh, is going to take them to Morbius's house. There's actually a scene where they're dr- uh, they show Robbie driving, and they, he's like terrorizing them with his speed. And I thought it was it was kind of a goofy scene. It was
1: it was goofy. You know, it it seemed like it was something out of Lost in Space. That you know, <laughs> they just, just didn't belong in Forbidden Planet. You know, and. Uh, so uh, yeah you can see why they cut out every pretty much everything that they cut out.
0: Well know? in the era long before digital effects I thought that w- what's cool about Forbidden Plan, not only did they have they spend money on certainly on production design because Morbius's house is amazing and uh you know the spaceship interior was amazing and the exterior of the spaceship was amazing. In fact that exterior of the spaceship of C57D is also Borrowed by Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone, because they use that that ship several times in different episodes, particularly um, the James Whitmore one hour episode on Thursday, We Leave for Home, which they uh-huh. kind of use the saucer again. But the, the, um, the effects were terrific. I, I thought that the, uh, you know, considering this is, again, before the digital age, uh, when Morbius takes them into the uh, Krell world un- underground. I thought that was particularly an amazing sequence. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it was great. I mean, I remember as a kid, just just really loving that entire sequence. And and um, I, I did want to mention something about the for the saucer for a moment. Is uh, uh, I had the occasion. Uh, in fact, I think you went and talked to him first. Was um, Buddy Gillespie, Arnold Gillespie, right? And. Uh, uh, He invited me to his house, and uh, um, he was the head of uh, mechanical effects, or you know, what he basically special effects, I guess is what you call it today. But he was um, he was the guy who did all the miniatures and stuff like that. He he like he supervised the the miniatures from uh, 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 Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo and stuff like that, which is just well, he
0: also he also did the tornado in The Wizard of Oz.
1: He did and uh, stuff like that. So, uh, you know, so I was able to go over and, and to his place and, and talk to him about it. And one of the things he was telling me about the flying saucer landing sequence was um, the bottom of the saucer, it's got the sort of spinning light on the bottom. That was actually lit with a neon uh, tube that was like round neon tube. And then they had like this sort of, Plastic piece that that rotated to give the thing look like a, a drive engines, and uh, apparently uh, in order to light that up, now you gotta remember this is a long time ago. They didn't have uh, LEDs, so that was a, they used this neon tube. And of course to fire neon you need high voltage, so they were running high voltage lines down through the fine wires that supported the saucer. And he would tell he told me that they that after every take they would have to go and repaint the saucer because because the high voltage would arc across the surface of the metal paint on the saucer and they'd have to repaint it which was which I thought was pretty fascinating one one thing else i want to mention about arnold Gillespie, i feel, you know it's one of those moments in your life you look back on you go stupid 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 you know why didn't i ask him more questions because here's a guy in hindsight he was at MGM in 1924 when they started and he would have known, like Lon Chaney and Lillian Gish, and just all of those people from a long time ago, and 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 you know Peter Lorre and con- probably Conrad Veidt and all these people. And I I never even thought to ask him any any of those questions. I remember in his his home, uh, you know, I was looking around his like his like den there, and and I was I saw like a chariot race, and I said, oh, is this from? This is from Ben Hur. Is this the one with the um, uh, uh, what's his name from 1950s? Uh, Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston, and he said, "No, no, not, not that one. This is the good one. This is the original." You know? <laughs> this is, he he worked on the original, you know, uh, uh, movie, and he Ben Hur, and you go, "Wow," you know.
0: The the uh, the listeners will be uh, happy to know that if you uh, go to Amazon, there is a great book on on Arnold Gillespie. I think it's I don't think it's an autobiography, but it's a terrific book about his world. And you want to learn more about one of the legends of MGM? That's that's the book to get. Yeah, and
1: he's a super nice guy too. I want to point out. Very nice guy. Very nice person.
0: So, Bill, you've uh, you've carved out a terrific career with all, a lot of your creative work. I mean, you've done horror films, like I said earlier, in all levels. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the things you're working on now, creatively, that you want to get out into the marketplace.
1: Well, you know, uh, you know, I have a number of projects. You know, I've got a, uh, a a film called Thallium's Box, which I've been working on for you know obviously a, a number of years now, because mainly because of COVID, that was we were destined, you know, we we're supposed to get into pre-production uh, just before COVID hit. And of course that put the, the kibosh to that. And, uh, you know, that I still wanna get, get going here shortly. And then, you know, I have a big um, action sort of sci-fi action thing called Phoenix Dust, which is about mm-hmm. a girl in the future who uh, oddly enough has to take down a uh, pharmaceutical company. <laughs> uh, who's who had created a a virus now this is this predates covid by quite a few years so
0: (laughs) and you and one of the scripts of yours i read i really enjoyed was the mirror
1: oh yeah well that was an h.r giger project is an h.r giger project and that was one i'd worked with giger on it's also a film I'm, i'm i'm very much keen on getting made because i really feel like you know while his stuff was used to a great extent and and wonderfully in alien i think that it's just scratched the surface of what his his uh, potential is and uh yeah so i have a uh project that's sort of like alice through the looking glass with the uh, uh the Giger's world on the other side
0: and you developed a relationship with Giger, correct
1: i did actually i spent a number i spent like 10 days with giger in zurich working on a prod on uh, the mirror and and uh also uh a film called uh Dead Star we actually had a couple different projects together um and Dead star ultimately became uh supernova and uh and all of the Giger stuff of course was excised from that project so it, which was a shame. I was originally going to direct it and uh um but it just didn't happen because it uh uh you know it got to be too big.
0: You know, mo- many people now, in, in light of COVID and, and the, the way the film business seems to be changing in many ways, uh, not necessarily for the good, uh, one of the key things that people talk about is whether uh, the, there's a certain danger about people going to movie theaters, whether that is starting to come to an end. What do you, what do you feel about the movie going experience about seeing movies in theaters?
1: You know, seeing movies in theaters is great. You know, uh, I'm just concerned that you know it's been you know, two years now, and most people don't go to movie theaters anymore, and and they've found other ways of watching films. And uh, you know, of course, big screens have become so uh, so available that a lot of people are watching stuff in their movies in their in their home rather. And uh, I'm just hoping that the movie theaters don't just go, you know the the way of uh, driving theaters
0: well my theory is that it, the, the the business depends on young people the under 30 set and my sense is that even though they have the big screens when they couple up whether they you know they're taking their girlfriend or whatever boyfriend to the to, to go out they prefer to see movies in theaters i think it's not only because of the joy of watching on the big screen, but I think it's the joy of being together kind of alone, at least with each other, without their parents looking over their shoulder. And I think that that, that feature, uh, I guess it comes down to sex in many ways. I mean, it's all about uh, you know, the, that aspect of life. I think movie theaters have always been a great little getaway for young people.
1: Yeah, too bad they missed out on the drive-in theaters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i know i know well there's still a couple around uh not too many though uh because <laughs> you wanted to do something illicit with your girlfriend that's where you went driving <laughs> <the car. laughs> i
1: remember here i remember hearing psycho <laughs>
0: Well, I I think that it's so funny because uh, you know I've I've walked out of very few movies in my life. I, I have to say that uh, it's got to be pretty awful for me to leave the theater. But I remember seeing a movie at a drive-in that was so bad that I actually drove out of the theater. It was that, that horrible. That's pretty uh, bad. That's pretty bad. That's that's pretty bad. Wasn't one of them. As you know, Bill, I could talk to you about Forbidden Planet forever and. You know you and i are are so so uh, we we love film in so many ways, and you've had the 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 you know the blessing of being able to make films. I've made some films, and we're gonna make more in the future. and I wish you good luck with all of your endeavors and um, everything you do. Oh well, thank you. and you too uh,
1: you you've been a great friend, and i I, I appreciate uh, your uh, you know intelligence and the, you know the uh, Uh, the way you've supported uh, my not only me but but films in general and and uh, you know written wonderful articles on on many films and uh, i i think it's a a real service uh, and i i I applaud you for that
0: thank you thank you so much and uh for those of you who've been listening you've been listening to saturday night at the movies and uh, i thought it was a lot of fun tonight to hear not only what Bill felt about the movie itself, but a lot of his experience behind the scenes and finding those amazing artifacts over the years. Uh, We'll talk to you next time.